Yeah, so the monkey cage was started by a bunch of professors at George Washington University. Originally, it was a mainly American politics and a little bit politics of the internet, and I got invited to join after about a year when they figured they could use someone who could write about stuff in the rest of the world besides <laughs> the United <laughs> States. But the original idea behind it was, I think, a sort of uh, twofold idea. It was basically that there was a lot of really great research being done on politics by political scientists. What the monkey cage is today is it is an attempt to have very quick commentary from academics that is research informed about current events. You are listening to the Slavic Connection. Today we have with us all the way from New York City, Dr. Joshua Tucker. He's a professor of politics and the director of the Jordan Center for Advanced Study of Russia at NYU. And he is at Texas for the Information Wars Symposium. And the focus of our show today was his recent book, Communism's Shadow, complicated but fascinating book that I really recommend. And we end with a little Game of Thrones theory too. So if you don't care about politics, you can fast forward to about the 40 minute mark and find something you might like. So hope you enjoy. Listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Joshua Tucker, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So uh, we were hoping to speak about your most recent book. I know you'll be talking a lot about Twitter and bots and how social media is destroying our society today. But Communism Shadow came out two years ago. Do you want to give the bumper sticker for it? I know a little bit about it. I don't want to... Sure. I'm happy to give a bump, the bumper sticker, but just before we get to the bumper sticker on the book, to be clear, the research that we do doesn't show social media is destroying society. Okay. Social media Good. is transforming politics mm -hmm. in ways that are positive and that are negative, and it depends on what your vantage point is for the positive and the negative part of it. So sure. I just don't, I don't want to let that, that, that slide right <laughs> okay. there. Um, yeah, so the bumper sticker for the book. We've been working, so this is co-authored with Grigory Popelikesh at Princeton University, and um, Grigo had been doing this kind of amazing work on uh, legacies and looking at communist-era legacies, but looking at sort of more institutional factors, so things that communist-era legacies on democracy, and there had been, you know, a bit of work going on in that regard. Some people had done work on legacies on, like, central bank independence and, and these kinds of things. And I was doing a lot of work on political behavior and mass political behavior. And so we started talking about whether or not we could do a sort of structured project on how communist era legacies affected political behavior. Um, and so we started, you know, in the beginning, we started sort of poking around, thinking about this. And it turns out there wasn't really kind of a method out there for how you would go about studying this. And the book went through sort of several phases and arcs as these kind of projects do. And originally, we were really interested in trying to do something on behavior writ large. So the original, we had a plan for this book that had like 16 chapters and it had <laughs> It was going to do attitudes. It was going to do evaluation. And we published some articles along the way that did some of these, uh, that looked at some of these other things, like evaluations of political parties was the first one that we published in this. Uh, but eventually, after having had a very, very helpful uh, book manuscript conference that set the, the publication date back by about three years, but made the book <laughs> much, much higher. These are the kind of things you can do when you have tenure. <laughs> right? It, but it made the book a much, much better book in the end. And so we eventually ended up sort of trying to decide that we wanted to do something more focused in the book. And we were looking at attitudes. And we wanted to see, like, could we find communist era legacies uh, having an effect on people's attitudes in the political sphere uh, in, in the post-communist era? And it, so a couple of interesting things. So I mentioned originally, like, there wasn't, there had been, you know, some legacy work 
uh, that had been trying to look at the legacy effects on institutions. We didn't really see any legacy work at that time. There's more people who are moving into this sphere now, and there's lots of kind of really exciting work going on in this area now. But at that time, there wasn't really much on attitudes. The other thing that was interesting for us was that most of the work that had been done on communist era legacies was either kind of single country studies trying to explain something that had happened in a country and then saying, well, you know, we can look back to the legacy of communism to explain almost this like residual thing that we can't explain other ways. Or they were like cross, they were comparative studies, but they were only within the communist world. And so our sort of fundamental insight from the beginning was to say, look, if you want to study communist era legacies, you need to compare, you, you want to think of this as almost a natural experiment, and you want to compare the treatment of being treated with communism uh, to the treatment of not being, you know, to the control group of not being treated with communism. So we decided, you know, and there are different ways one could approach this. And there's lots of like, in, there's incredibly interesting interesting work being done by people like my colleagues Leo Pasakin at NYU Abu Dhabi and Arturis Rosanis at NYU that is kind of very micro level legacy work. Like um, Leo has this stuff about looking at a border that's like 30 mile, 30 kilometers farther than it was supposed to be and you get an exogenous shock of having the border in a different place than it should be and what are the legacies of that on attitude six years, 60 years later. So there's really cool kind of very, very focused micro level work. There's been work done uh, comparing uh, like by Anja Neundorf, do, comparing uh, you know East Germany and West Germany, and looking at legacies you know from the, across within Germany. So there's been really interesting kind of micro. But we decided to take a different approach when we started this, and to go kind of as big as we could, and and begin to look at the differences in attitudes between people who were living in post-communist countries and people who were not living in post-communist countries. And essentially, so that's the lead-in. That's where it all came from. The bumper sticker of the sort of book is that we then also developed kind of two theoretical explanations for explaining why there might be divergence between attitudes among citizens living in post-communist countries and citizens living in the rest of the world. And we were looking at, in this book, we ended up looking at attitudes towards democracy, markets, social welfare, and gender equality. Um, and we, what we found was that very quickly, when you start to look at it, you know, there are divergences in attitudes in the first three of those. Gender equality is a whole different ballgame, which we could talk more about if you're interested. But for the first three, democracy, markets, and social welfare, there are differences in opinions. They're exactly what you think those differences in opinions would be if you were to sit down and write predictions, what would be legacies from exposure to, you know, Soviet communist rule or Marxist-Leninism, less supportive of democracy, less supportive of markets, more supportive of state-provided social welfare. We did not, as I said, find the fourth one that we were looking for, which was more support for uh, for gender equity. Um, and so we, uh, so we said, well, what could be explaining this? And the book essentially introduces two potential explanations. One is we call this, uh, we call it living in a post-communist country. And the basic idea here is that maybe the reason there were differences in attitudes is that essentially there are factors on the ground that, uh, that influence our attitudes about things like democracies and markets. And these factors are just different in post-communist countries. Now, they might be different for reasons having nothing to do with communism. They might be different for reasons having to do with communism. But you could imagine, for example, like a world in which attitudes towards the market is completely dependent on whether you have, is, it's dependent on two factors, education and unemployment. And in places, you know, in parts of the world, and it's exactly the same the world over, right? Those are the two things that determine attitudes towards the market. And basically, if you have more highly educated people who are unemployed, and you're going to find more dissatisfaction with markets. And if 
the post-communist countries had a surplus of highly educated people who were unemployed, right? That could explain what the difference was. Um, and it would be about the situation on the ground. You could do the same thing with demographic characteristics. You could do the same thing with political institutions. Maybe people don't like democracy as much uh, in countries where there are presidential systems as opposed to parliamentary systems. If there's a surplus of presidential systems in post-communist countries, that could explain the difference. So that was our sort of living in a post-communist country theory. And the key thing about that was that you could make all of these arguments without recourse to the actual experience of living through communism. These are a whole set of arguments that have nothing to do with people's individual experiences living through communism. The alternate theory we called living through communism, right? And it was based on this long line of literature and political science about political socialization and regimes trying to inculcate uh, attitudes among their citizenry that are supportive of the regime. And so that argument is it's actually the experience of living through communism. And then we spent a lot of time, you know, many years trying to set up methodologies to test these things. And the, the sort of key insight we basically made on testing and our approach to testing the legacy approach of living through communism was to just make a really simple argument, which was that if it was living through communism that leads to the attitude in question or has an effect on the attitude in question, then we should be able to observe that people who lived more years under communism would have more of that effect than people who lived fewer years. Now, that became very complicated from a methodological standpoint, because obviously people who are older have lived through more communism. We don't want to conflate those two. So we spent a while, you know, so fortunately, there's this rise of this literature in, political, in the political science methodology called age period cohort work. And we were able to come up with ways which, if you're interested, we can talk to, to estimate that. And then the final part of the bumper sticker is, much to my surprise, someone who I had written a book on economic voting in post-communist countries. I thought we were going to go in, we were going to look at the state of the economy, it was going to explain these differences, and that was going to kind of be the end of the story. But much to my surprise, it turned out that we found much more consistently strong support for this living through communism explanation, that time and time again, we found that if you had more years of exposure to communism, even controlling for your age, which we were able to do by pooling a lot of different surveys, uh, that was leading to these uh, the, the changes in the attitude. So that's sort of the, the background on it, where it came from, as well as the sort of bumper sticker of what we found. Uh, the other really interesting kind of finding from the book was that we did not, about this whole sort of gender equality thing, that things, looking at these attitudes around gender equality looked very, very different. And we can, we can talk more about that if you're interested. Sure. That's a hell of a bumper sticker. Uh, and do you think uh, the terms looking for democracy, social welfare, uh, markets, gender equality, do you think those themselves were loaded in some ways when, so I think you had an end of, what, 60,000, I think, in the survey? Oh, no, no, no. We had much hundreds of thousands. I, yeah, I, I might have been thousand. thinking of yeah, a specific yeah, yeah. one. Do you think... Um, just those ideas in countries right now that are not very democratic I mean totally different things to what they do to a liberal audience. Did you guys, uh, you know, have to yeah, so, for that? Yeah, so we absolutely thought about those questions. And so what we do in the book is we use different combinations across different chapters of different survey questions. And we build indices to see, you know, to, so we're not dependent, except in the social welfare chapter where we had exactly the question that we wanted to ask, which is, do you think the state should provide, you know, for social welfare population? Um, the, and, but for the democracy ones and the markets ones, we used a variety of different questions. And when we create these indices off of them, at levels of support. But the key thing is, I think the most important sort of point of your question is this question of the word democracy. Um, which is, is that a loaded term, right? Like, and does that mean different things? We've, we were asked this early on in the process when we were starting presenting work on the democracy chapter. Does that mean different things in the context of post-communist environments? As it, or did it mean different things in communist countries than it means in the West, how we might think about it? Um, and 
And after all, right, it was the German Democratic Republic. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we did in the book was that we had this sort of standard methodology, which involved using the world value surveys, which gave us these hundreds of thousands of surveys over a 20-year period, where we were able to look at you know, respondents from all over the world. But in each of the chapters, we did deeper dives into particular questions, and we would use other survey data, other data sets, and maybe other, you know, to be able to ask ask specific questions that we couldn't ask in the whole giant data set, but having done the whole giant data set to get the big picture, we could dive down deeper. So in the World Value Survey, what we did, for the actually for the democracy chapter, what we did was we, one of the things we did was we re-ran our entire analysis, dropping from the index every question that mentioned the word democracy. So some of our questions had the word democracy in it, some of them didn't. Mm -hmm. We just dropped the ones that didn't, re-ran the analysis, we got the same results. We also, in that chapter, if you're interested, we did some, one wave of the World Value Survey asked people a bunch of questions about what they thought about democracy. And so we did look at, at differences in uh, how people thought about democracy between the post-Soviet world and non-post-Soviet world. And some of it was what you would expect, right? Like there was a greater emphasis on kind of social justice mm -hmm. as being a characteristic of democracy among citizens in the post-communist world. Some of it was a little surprising. Like, like there was no difference, or, or actually even slightly more, I think, among post-communist countries about thinking procedures, like electoral procedures were important for democracy. And I think even, I have to go back and look at it, it's in the, it's in the end of one of the chapters in the book, but I think even stuff about you know, freedom of speech and things like that being, you know, sort of the kind of those being important components of democracy. We also ran the analysis for that subsection of the data, again, controlling for all those factors. So essentially, like, parsing out the fact that people might have thought differently, and we still find the same effects of age of years of exposure. Wow. And I think um, in that democracy chapter, one of the most resonant things with me was sort of countries that had low GDP prior to communism and had a hardline communist rule were more susceptible to sort of this negative democracy index. Why do you think people who were poor and were the most oppressed never, was it a hardwiring thing that they can never pick it back up? So we've got, so this, this falls into this general category of, you know, well, Okay, sure. So a year of exposure to communism should lead to more of this attitude, but all years aren't created equal. And this became, in the course of writing the book, sort of, I think, the biggest struggle for us, because every time we presented to an audience, someone would raise another question. What about hardline <laughs> rule? What about whether they were poor? What about you know, what it was like before 1917? And you could kind of go on indefinitely about this. And we had a sort of, we had a kind of a, a tension within our partnership right, where one of us wanted to make sure that we addressed every single one of these questions because, you know, <laughs> because they were important questions. And one of us wanted to have a kind of parsimonious bumper sticker, you know, like <laughs> theory that we could explain to people um, and wanted to get this in, you know, wanted to not have this, you know, just never ending string of things that we were looking at. And so what we ended up doing, and this is, this is just a huge plus to the value of presenting your work, right? Because it just took a a lot of times of presenting this, getting questions about this, and then trying out different frameworks for how we were gonna address this. But eventually what we did, and this was a suggestion that somebody made in a talk that we gave once, eventually what we did is we started to think about this in terms of using the metaphor of actually sunburn. So we're gonna put aside that sort of, let's put aside that sort of normative <laughs> connotations of referring to Soviet communism as a sunburn, <laughs> right? But, the, but this idea here that if you think about uh, exposure to the sun, Right. We always think that if you get exposed to another hour of sunlight, 
you're more likely to get sunburned than if you had gotten exposed to one fewer hour. Like that totally makes sense. However, we also know that if you're exposed to an hour of sunlight in Vladivostok, right, right now, where Putin is today, I believe, with, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, versus being exposed to an hour of sunlight uh, on the beach in, you know, Sochi in the middle of the summer, it's going to be a different more likely to get sunburned when you're in the middle of the summer, you're in someplace really warm, um, as opposed to other places, right? So the the always another hour of sunlight gives you more likely to get sunburned, but the va- the exposure varies, right? The power of that hour can vary. So we took that to sort of say, okay, look, there's some factors that could intensify the effect of exposure to communism. Also, the same thing is if you're on a beach in Greece and you're exposed to three hours of sunlight, you're more likely to get sunburned if you're, wearing, if you're not wearing suntan lotion or sunscreen than if you are wearing sunscreen. So we said there were a bunch of factors that could lead to sort of a resistance um, to this. And so we use this framework of these intensifying factors and these resistance factors to say, yes, we get it. Like not all year, a year of exposure is not equal in all cases. It also allowed us to wrap in the thing that we were sort of most interested in the beginning and had been doing from the very get-go, which was to sort of distinguish between uh, rule under a totalitarian system, rule under, you know, the sort of post-totalitarian or the reformist or this kind of, you know, the sort of like later years of communism. And so this gave us the framework for doing this. And we then were able to incorporate these lots and lots of suggestions. And in the second chapter of the book, we have a table where we list like all these different variables that we look at. And the, but the bottom line of this exercise, like we thought what we would find when we set out to do this is that like there would be a series of factors that just seemed like they were really important and a series of, and then the rest of them would not seem particularly important. And we'd be able to have a conclusion that said like, okay, it's this story of living through communism, but it really matters whether you live through a totalitarian system and it really matters whether you're ex in them. As we went along and did this, what we discovered is that we can have these kind of conversations that you had, that you just, the points you just raised, like, oh, I'm looking at democracy and it sees these two things variable matter. And then you look at a different chapter and other things matter. That there really wasn't at the end of the day a kind of silver bullet where we could say, look, it's living through communism, but you have to take account of A, B, and C, right? And, and in the end, where I sort of ended up feeling comfortable was saying, look, for any given one of these attitudes, you can certainly learn more if you go through this exercise of thinking about, you know, poor, getting the GDP from before communism and looking at what happens or, you know, getting all these things, you'll know more about the effect of exposure to communism for that particular issue. And so that's where I sort of feel comfortable saying, like, you can learn more about this. But do we have a big picture explanation? We have a couple, right? There are a couple of things that seem to really matter. Um, One is that consistently Catholicism and to some extent Protestantism would put a bit of a, would be a bit of this kind of, um, you know, uh, buffer against the effect, the cumulative effect of exposure to communism. The other thing we found pretty consistently across the chapters, consistent with some of Ken Jowett's early observations about this in the early 1990s, is that it does seem that people who were in urban areas, the effect of exposure to communism was stronger on people in urban areas than rural areas, which would be consistent with a kind of propaganda-driven type approach to this. But proving that is really, really difficult. And we've been working on this in subsequent research since this time to see, can we nail down what these mechanisms are that allow this living through communism to work? The one other thing that I would spend a couple seconds talking about, though, that we did find that was super interesting was looking about the time of life exposure. So I mentioned we built on this large political science literature on political socialization. And in this literature, the emphasis has really been on, the big argument has been, is this something that happens in childhood or does it actually continue through life? And what we found that started surprising us in chapter after chapter 
was that actually in some of the chapters, childhood didn't matter at all. And in the cases where childhood mattered, adult exposure mattered a lot more. And that was a sort of big surprise to us, right? And for a while, I was concerned that it was a sort of artifact of the way the data was coded and the way we had set up this method, that there was there were so a lot of people who had, because we were looking over decades, so there were a lot of people who had the max level of childhood exposure. But then, when we looked at the gender equity chapter, right, there, in that chapter, we found exactly what the, the sort of Western style literature had predicted. Big effect for childhood exposure, much weaker effect for adult exposure. And if you think about it for a second, and this is where it gets really interesting, because as I said, we didn't find the gap in the gender equity chapter that we expected. Post-communist citizens are not more supportive of gender equity than they are than people who live in non-post-communist countries. But we did find that being a kid growing up under communism, those additional years of exposure actually made you more supportive of gender equity. And when we try to think about why we didn't find this gap that we expected to find in the gender chapter, you know, there were a bunch of different things that came up. But one possibility was that in terms of democracy, market, social welfare, you know, these communist regimes, they kind of both walk the walk and talk the talk and walk the walk. But the record on social equity is much, much more mixed, especially when you dig into sort of women's situations under communism. Um, and so this was a situation where you know, one of the potential explanations, we didn't have a research design to do this because we learned this in the course of the research. So we'd have to go back and really, you know, think about this more. And if we were going to try to like look at more issues, if we were going to try to figure out what's different about gender. But if you think about where communist societies really did walk the walk in terms of gender equity, it was in getting girls into the schools, mm -hmm. right? And indeed, you would think that the sort of problems between uh, men having more opportunities in the educational system were more likely to develop at the higher levels of education than they were in the, in the lower levels of education. So that was super interesting, right? But then going back to what we found in the, in the other chapters, right, this idea that adult exposure seemed to matter more than childhood exposure, you know, more needs to be done to understand this. Um, it wasn't something we expected to find originally, but if you tend to think, so my co-author uh, on this grew up in Ceausescu's Romania and was like 18 during when the collapse of communism took place. And if you think from that kind of context that like you're getting this exposure in schools, it doesn't seem that important when you're a kid, right? right? And so yes, you have to like go to young pioneer camps and all this sort of stuff. But it's when you become an adult and you realize the cost of not towing the party line in public may be more severe, right, than it was when you were in schools. Maybe, maybe that's what's going on. And if it is, it might suggest something interesting about socialization and how people living in non-democratic regimes sort of internalize regime propaganda and how it might be, you know, how this socialization process of, oh, I'm a Republican because my parents are Republicans and we're Republicans and we talk about Republicans positively when we're kids, that that's something different than there is an ideology that you have to accept. And if you sort of step out of line of that ideology as an adult, there may be consequences. And maybe that process is different when it's breaking society down into multiple political parties, but everybody is you know, still being inculcated into a liberal democratic ideology. And I don't mean liberal and the liberal conservative within American politics. I mean sort of classical liberal democratic I ideology um, versus you know, a society where there is a ruling party with a ruling ideology and it may be costly. So I think th those were kind of, th that's those that's what we learned from that process. And, and some of that stuff I think is super interesting. Yeah, and were there any attempts to kind of draw a connection between years of exposure to communism and then voter behavior in the countries 
afterwards, kind of years later, is there a way that these you know attitudes that we've fixated and we've coded various variables before tie that to voter information and and you know you know vote results uh, in the years after right. communism ended? Yeah, that was chapters fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen, <laughs> which got emphatically yeah, yeah. Uh, cut during our book manuscript conference. No, I mean one of the, if I can make a, a, a pitch for this here. I think one of the nice things about what we've done here, and it's not just us, there are other, there are other scholars who are doing, I think, kind of really exciting uh, new research in this regard. I mentioned Anya Noindov yeah. before, uh, Elias Dinas. There's a bunch of people who are, you know, who are really working hard on these kind of age period cohort models and, and doing these kind of more and more uh, leg, this kind of legacy work on attitudes and behavior. But I think one, and, and so I would advise people to read widely on this. If it was 10 years ago, I'd say, hey, look at our chapter, you know, look, look what we did. But there's a lot of people doing yeah, this yeah. stuff right now. And I think the nice thing about that is that our framework, or if you want to use one of the other frameworks that people have put forward, is a, now a guide path for people who are, you know, just starting getting involved in studying this, where you can take this methodology and apply it to other forms of political behavior. Like anything you can kind of measure on a survey, especially anything you can measure on the World Value Survey, you can literally do what we did, which is sort of replicate the steps of this and then go go look at that. Now, of course, the nice thing about the, um, our methods, right, the way that we worked on this, um, the, the one of the nice things about that is that we were asking like generic questions that Again, you raised good points about do people interpret all these things similarly, but at least we were like, what's your support for democracy? What's your support for markets? Right? When you get into voting and you want to use our big cross-national framework, it becomes a lot more complicated because you've then got to say, like, you have to say, okay, what's your support for, you know, is there a communist legacy of support for far-right parties, right? Like, mm -hmm. do years of exposure make you more want to support? Well, then you got to go through and you got to code what the far-right yeah. party is in each yeah. of the countries. Yeah. But the method is absolutely there. We just didn't do it in this yeah. book. Sort of a two-part question, um, kind of the same vein. Did you find, like, a golden year of indoctrination, i.e. if you were 24 uh -huh. and you were under a Stalinist regime, you were never going to be in favor of democracy? Like, there's that old line, like, what, the music you listen to at 24, right. you're going to listen to the rest of your life. I was right. curious if that applies to ideology. And I guess the second part, I'm going to ask these separately, is did you measure sort of the failed promise of post-communist democracy that was fueling the sort of negativity after the fact? Right. And it was less about what each offered. It was, you know, I think the hope is often more, you know, powerful than actually what you're living in. Right. So to answer the first question, no, we didn't do that. Now, it's interesting because some of the other papers that I've read, you know, when you write a book on this subject, then you get asked to review a lot of <laughs> papers about this kind of thing. Some of the other, you know, papers that I've looked at, people have used, you know, these kind of cutoff methods where they say, we are going to look at the effect of uh, we're going to look at the effect of being a certain age at a certain time. You know, were you 18 before the collapse of communism? And they sort of do it. Our method was a different approach to that. There are pluses and minuses of it. One of the minuses of our method is I can't answer your question <laughs> at all, right? Like, we were really just interested in the cumulative effect. And in fact, our whole identification strategy, the way that we were able to get an effect for exposure independent of age, revolved around the fact that we were using surveys over a 20-year period, revolved around the fact that we were using surveys from different countries where communism started and ended at different points in time. So our method is not kind of set up to answer those questions. That being said, the sort of basic pathway that we set forward, which is like measure people's age, measure people's exposure to communism, you could absolutely go back and do this and ask this kind of question. Um, I would suggest maybe doing it in, you know, like I think if you're going to look for a, an age from just a statistical standpoint, that's going to be not going to be very robust and you're going to think, but if you think about like a generation, you know, like asking the question of did you come of age under communism or not? 
that would be a slightly like so that would be like a, a so from our perspective actually in our in our um, model if it was really did you come of age under communism or not what you would have expected to see was these effects for exposure as a child and no effect for exposure as an adult right if we that's the result we had gotten on all these things then we could have been able to say yeah the key thing we wouldn't have been able to say like you were like it was being 18 but the key thing was really being exposed as a child and there is a long as i said a long history and that kind of thing but no we don't have a thing on the on the sort of age the second question again remind me was um, sort of the failed promise oh, of right. post-soviet yeah. democracy or post-communist democracy yeah so we really so in some of the other work i've done um, on uh, post-communist political behavior, and specifically my work, to, well, both the economic voting stuff, but really the stuff on attitudes towards the EU. I've been super interested in this question. Like, And my work on attitudes towards the EU was really predicated on sort of thinking there were economic winners from the transition and there were economic losers from the transition. And, you know, the prediction was that the economic winners would be more likely to support EU membership than the economic losers. And the argument was the EU was seen as a sort of locking in of the post-communist transition. And there was a lot of, we found a lot of support for that in a bunch of different studies. But even my earlier economic voting work, it was really predicated on this idea that economic winners would vote in one particular way, economic losers would vote in another way. So very, you know, very, very sympathetic to that approach. Approach. And indeed, I thought we were going to control for economic conditions, and that was and that was going to take care of everything. And that was ba- that's basically your story, right? We were going to find there was a lot of economic hardship, and that's why these attitudes were different. And once we could pinpoint when and where that hardship was, we'd understand the variation in the attitudes. That was the whole idea behind it. Now, there are more complex ways that you could try to do this with survey questions, with trying to get at you know people's relationships, interdependent relationships between people's exposure to communism, what you really want to see is like, who are the people for who communism was okay and post-communism was a disaster versus the people for whom communism was okay and post-communism was really good versus the people for whom communism was bad and post-communism was still bad and communism was bad, but post-communism was good. Like, and we did have some earlier versions of this, but from a statistical standpoint, you then get into what's known as these sort of triple interactive effects, and it becomes you're really pushing on the data hard. And also to say anything convincing, you've got to run it like 72 different ways. And we were trying to do this on four chapters. And if you read the book, there's already a whole lot of analysis popped in there. I mean, part of what we were trying to do with this, like adding the deep dives into like different issues at the end of each chapters was just not bore people by like running through the same 16 analyses, which we sort of had to do to make our point. But if we did this, we would have had to run through the same 60 analyses to do it. Mm -hmm. So we backed off that. But I do think there is interesting work to be done in that regard. Where we got it in to the analysis was, I think, by this living in a post-communist country, where we could talk about things like levels of corruption, where we could talk about things like you know GDP growth and, and that kind of a sense, and even you know some of the earlier stuff that we talked about before, like what was you know what were levels of literacy before communism. You could get a little bit of like how well communism, how much communism helped your country and how badly your country was hurt by post-communism, but it, it's still at the aggregate level. And that's not nearly the kind of analysis that your question crawls out for, which is like getting this kind of individual level variation. It also, I will say, becomes a little more complicated to do that if you want to work in the framework where we were, which was comparing citizens in the post-communist world to the non-post-communist world. Because then it beca- some of these comparisons stop making sense when you don't actually have the treatment of having been exposed to communism. And so we spent 
uh, so some of the, that's the reason that some of the analyses in the book, we actually end up just, when we go into these like intensifying and resistance variables, we, res, we restrict the analysis just to the communist country, the post-communist countries. And to do something like this, you might have to think about doing that as well. But it's a great question for the future. And we hope that, we hope that our work will inspire lots of people to do, the book will inspire lots of people to answer lots of these great questions that we didn't get to at all. I guess that's the peril of being a political scientist. Your work is really never done. That could be common to shadow part two, though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you want to give your uh, civics two cents, well, Matt? Well, yeah. Or? I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm just somebody who's looking at civic education, both in communist states and then in post-communist states. And I was wondering, you know, was competence in civics something that you thought about, right? Is there, are there the, so, you know, the, the communist citizens who take, take all the political activity seriously, know their representatives, are really active, and then did you separate those from the people who, communism, it's, they're, they're, it's miles away from them? No. I mean, the short yeah. answer is no. I mean, and, that, and, and that's, you know, one of the 8,000 questions yeah. we would get about, how about this characteristic? Yeah, how about yeah. this as well? Yeah. But it's a really interesting point. Yeah. It's a really interesting point. And, and in a sense, what I'll do is I'll, I would take that. So first of all, yes, it would be interesting to look at that. We were more trying to think about moderators of exposure to communism, uh-huh. as opposed to, as we were just talking about here, right. like moderators that were like, you know, pulling into your post-communist life and life, what your yeah. life was. Because that's also called like a post-treatment effect. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, the treatment is communism and then this is something that's happening later. That being said, we did try to get some of that in there by, and by definition, you have to, by getting the demographic characteristics, which we're measuring in the post-communist context. Uh, although for most people, the demographic, they're, you know, anyway. But that's, so, so I think it's a really interesting question. But I think it raises a larger question. And that is, you know, we're taking, we, in this book, the framework was to sort of say, we want to see what the legacy effect of, of, of living through communism or, you know, being in these post-communist countries, which were transformed by communism in a certain way, was on these attitudes. There are, to be very clear, we're not arguing in this book that legacies are the only thing that matter. In fact, they're probably a small piece of this. This was not a book written about explaining attitudes towards democracy. This was a book written about explaining what the, could we, it was A, could we study legacy effects on political behavior, and B, what were the legacy effects of the sort of, probably the largest ever kind of experiment in social, you know, in social economic reorganizations of society ever for the longest period of time. Probably the only thing that compares to this is like the rise of the Catholic Church and, you know, in Europe or something like, you know, something like that. But this was a massive sort of reorganizing of people's, you know, social, economic, and political lives. Did it have a legacy effect? That was the point of this book. So it should not be interpreted as saying anything else doesn't matter. We were just trying to pin down whether that, whether we could find that. So there are lots of other things. The question of, you know, what we hope for is that if you were to write a book about what determines attitudes towards democracy in post-communist countries, you'd at least start with saying, well, there's this issue of legacies that we might want to take account of, right? And it looks like, you know, from Communism Shadow, that the, you know, the key thing here is people with more years of exposure to communism. So we're going to have to, in this, you know, in this study that I'm doing here, we're going to take account of age because at this point, that's going to be our best proxy for people's, you know, years. But we're going to argue X, Y, and Z, you know, within that framework. But yeah, there's lots of things. Also, you know, one of the interesting things about this is that if we're right that a decent amount of this was driven, you know, if we're right that a decent amount of the legacy effect flows through having lived through communism, that's going to dissipate over time. 
How fast it dissipates over time has to do with the extent to which there's intergenerational transmission of these attitudes. Mm -hmm. And we did in one of the chapters try to sort of dig into that with some really interesting data we had found from Hungary. But even if there is intergenerational transmission, we would expect it would be weaker than the effect of the actual exposure itself. So this, you know, we were interested in these legacy effects. We expect, you know, what are we now, three decades in, that these are going to be dissipating over time. Um, and that attitudes towards democracy in post-communist countries should come to look more similar to the rest of the world. And we do find in many of these studies that we've done that when you look at people with zero exposure to democracy, they look just like people elsewhere. Now, there are that doesn't say that there's going to be more support for democracy. There's lots of places where there's not a lot of support for democracy. It's just that we wouldn't expect there would be a peculiar post-communist you know, um, gap in levels of support for democracy. We would expect the same factors that are explaining why people support democracy in the rest of the world would apply there more. And if, you know, civic engagement is something that you think is an important feature yeah. of support for democracy, we would expect to see, you know, I would, I would expect to see that. And it's, but it raises another really interesting question, right, of course, which is that if you're going to look at this, um, if you're going to look at this in uh, the context of Russia, and particularly other post-Soviet republics, excluding the Baltic states, it's a fascinating question. Like, I think we would certainly expect that in you know, traditional liberal democracies where we expect that elections are meaningful in choosing the leadership of the country, being involved in the electoral process, I think, would be associated with having higher levels of interest in democracy, support for democracy, whether what direction the causal arrows go is a huge question, right? Do you get involved because of this level of support mm -hmm. or does doing it drive it? But it's a super interesting question. In countries where elections matter less, I'm not going to say they don't matter because we do know that in Russia there are some elections, especially elections occurring at the local level now, um, that, are, that are really, uh, that are important um, and that are, you know, that the Kremlin doesn't, Kremlin back candidates don't always win and stuff like that. So it's a really interesting question to see what the effect of that is. And you could imagine there could be, you know, a residual frustration if you're involved in civic politics and you're never getting anywhere from it. Or you could imagine, you know, a real, you know, that that would be a real factor. But we didn't look at it in the book. Uh, so I promised we'd get to the monkey cage at some point. Um, I wanted to bring this to America first quickly. What do you think this type of research would look like? You know, say I was 24 in the Reagan era, would that mean I'm always sort of predisposed to this sort of ideology? Or is it a little more confusing in America with sort of Newton cradle type uh, right. ideology we have? So there's, I mean, I'm not going to go too far on this. There's a huge literature on this totally question. Weird. I mean, I think the one of the things that I would um, push you towards is the sort of social identity theory of partisanship that was in a book uh, called Partisan Hearts and Minds. Uh, and they argue in that book that sort of, that we should think about uh, partisan identification as kind of a social identity. So you identify actually with not the party itself, but with supporters of the party. And that this party is for people like me. And that like a lot of social identities, partisanship gets fixed about by the time you're 30. Um, there's lots of other theories of partisanship that some that's called the rational revisionist theory of partisanship that suggests it's more it's a little more flexible. Other was the original kind of Michigan school party theory of partisanship, which is it's a psychological attachment to a party that develops when you're younger. Um, there's a lot of different questions about this, but there is certainly is a belief. I mean, I would say like as a political scientist, if I had to summarize this in one sentence, there certainly is a belief that partisanship is sticky. And it's something that you acquire earlier on in life, whether it's just during your childhood or this kind of 20s generation for people who leave home, right, 
after they're in their 20s, if you go off to university, if you go work in different cities and work in different places, the 20s is, is seen as a time where you're kind of becoming more politically aware, you're done with college, you're thinking about these things. Um, but generally, it tends to be set by the time you're 30 is the, is the basic argument. There are other people who argue, like if you vote in three elections, that's a very strong habit forming uh, type of behavior. But I will say as just an aside, this is not potentially very good news for the Republican Party, looking at the sort of reaction in particular to Trump, but also to Obama among the sort of younger, if you look at you know, Gen Z and the millennials, um, if you, we, we do have one particular, you bring up the Reagan Democrats, which I think was a sort of bulge that kind of helped the Republican Party. But before that, you had the generation that came of age during the sort of New Deal, the Roosevelt Democrats. And that generation moved through politics as a really, really solid Democratic bloc. The House of Representatives was controlled by Democrats for 40 years at that point. There were other reasons for that and had to do with political alignments in the South and, and lots of other things. But the possibility of uh, Gen Z and the millennials uh, moving through politics as a kind of very solidly democratic bloc, we know they will vote in higher numbers as they get older, right? Turnout goes up as you get older. What we don't know is if they'll become more conservative as they get older. This goes back to this age period cohort re research that I was talking about before then. But, but there's, but we, the research, I mean, I'm, I'm flattered that you're like, oh, what can your research tell us about the United States? You know, but we were in a sense trying to bring some of this longstanding literature that was in the United, that was in a lot the United States, but other Western democracies on political socialization to, you know, the study of regime legacy. So that's was what we were interested in was like, when you have a regime shift, what's the, it does that regime shift have a lasting legacy? So tell us about the monkey cage. How did it get started? How did you guys end up moving to the Washington Post? And then how can we kind of get involved with it? Yeah, okay, great. Yeah, so the monkey cage was this idea that um, it was started by um, a bunch of professors at George Washington University. Originally, it was a... Um, mainly American politics and a little bit politics of the internet. And I got invited to join after about a year when they figured they could use someone who could write about stuff in the rest of the world besides <laughs> the United <laughs> States. Um, but the original idea behind it was, I think, a sort of uh, twofold idea. It was basically that there was a lot of really great research being done on politics by political scientists, but that political scientists, like most academics, you're generally writing for other academics. You're writing to get public, the incentive structure of the academy is you write to get published in peer reviewed journals. And that means a particular style of writing. And that in political science, that writing style was becoming much increasingly technical. It was becoming more and more removed from uh, what people who were interested in politics could read and process and would want to read, to be honest, about a lot of it. And so, but we, the John Sides, who was the sort of, who started it with Henry Farrell and Lee Siegelman, you know, he has this great first post, like, why this blog that he wrote when it just started. And one of the things he mentions is that economists, you know, were more technical, more formal than political scientists, and yet they seem to have no problem getting their views taken account of, right? If you think about it, like there's a council of economic advisors for the president. There's no council of political advisors, yeah, yeah. right? Like, because everything is supposed to be politics, right? So the idea was, if the economists could do this, and the economists were sort of jumping out and there were some prominent blogs by economists already, um, you know, could we try to do this as political scientists? And so the Monkey Gage was formed to basically try to write about political science research in terms and in language that people who were interested in politics but didn't necessarily have a postgraduate degree in the social sciences could read and understand. 
And so that was the original idea behind it. Um, and I think at that point in time, this was about 10 years ago, lots of people were starting blogs. We were talking before the podcast started about <laughs> like the blog parallel and the podcast parallel now, right? Lots of people were starting blogs. But a lot of, I think, political scientists who were writing and starting blogs at that moment in time had a kind of partisan opinion, right? We made the monkey cage from the get-go nonpartisan, right? Our goal was to translate research for people who were interested. And we were not going to do op-eds. We were not going to do have a partisan slant. And I think the combination of those three things and then just getting really lucky um, made it stick out. Um, and when I joined, I joined about a year in, a year and a half in. Um, we, uh, that, by that point, they were already getting about, uh, I think it was, at that point, they were already getting about 1,000 a, a th page views a day. Um, and so that was a lot, you know, yeah, 30,000 page views a month or something like that. And then over the course of, over the, course of the time that we I was with them when we were independent, that kind of kept gradually going up to the point where it was more like 5,000 page views a day. And we were getting, uh, and we were getting let's see, that would be like... Yeah, 150,000 uh, views a day. And as we got bigger, we started to get more attention from the sort of growing, um, the sort of growing roster of, what, of what's now called like data-driven journalists. So people like Ezra Klein and some of these people who had been bloggers themselves, and there were other folks in that, uh, other folks in that, like Matt Iglesias, like in that sort of genre, who were beginning to say, look, if we're going to write about politics, we should also be paying attention to what political scientists are doing in their research. And the monkey cage was this incredible like crib tool to just do that quickly, to be able to, you didn't have to read lots of political science journals. You could read what we were writing about, uh, about politics. And so we started to get some offers about moving to different places. Um, and we eventually, and we, and we, we stayed away from them for a variety of different reasons originally. Um, but eventually we got this opportunity to go join the Washington Post, um, which seemed like too good an opportunity to pass up. Um, and at that point, so we did make about five years ago, we made this move to the Washington Post. And it was an immediate jump. Like if we were getting 150,000 page views a month b before we went to the Post, immediately upon going to the, pay to the Post, we went up to like 700,000 page views a month. Um, so it got a lot more, um, it got a lot more exposure at that point. The other thing that happened at that point in time was that when I first started, like when John asked me if I wanted to join, he's like, you need to write like three posts a week if you want to do this thing, right? So we were doing all of the writing, but we would ask our friends and people we knew to sort of do guest posts because that was a lot of writing to have to do. And especially when I came on and it was like, you know, you're gonna, you can do the rest of the world, right? Like, you know, and, 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 you know, and the Arab Spring happened. Like, I didn't know stuff about the Arab Spring, but I knew people who did know stuff about the Arab Spring. So I, in particular, started cultivating stables of people who I'd be like, hey, can you write something on this? And the cool thing was, because it was the monkey cage, people would do it. Like, and they were, more and more people were willing to do it. And we, and we had a kind of model of that regard, in that sort of thing of us just reaching out to people. And then I was like, I tried to set up a thing about an election series. So I would have a list of all the elections taking place in the world in the next like nine months. And I'd be like, all right, who do I know who does this? Who do I know? But of course we know from a kind of network-based theory that when you do this, right, like you're gonna include certain people and not include certain people. Um, and so we've gradually transitioned and it, w it was a kind of organic process from being a bunch of people who were doing the writing ourselves 
and then reaching out to people in our networks to supplement that and to help us out with it to what now is a very submission-based process. It's an entirely submission-based process. And from my perspective, we as the editors, we've also tremendously diversified our editorial team. You know, We were originally the five authors of this were five white men. We're now five men and five women. Um, and we are continuing you know, to try to diversify what we're, you know, diversify the people who do. We're doing outreaches now. We're going out to conferences. We're going to meet with people to try to talk to them. So we're really, it, it's transitioned, I think, from what was a blog from a bunch of people who were, um, who were, you know, who were interested in trying to do this, but doing all the writing to like, my role has like transitioned to being, I describe it now as like being um, the editor of a journal with really short articles and really quick turnaround times, right? Mm -hmm. So most of what we end up doing is, is editing now. Mm -hmm. and, and in a sense, it's really completely transformed from what it used to be. It became much more, um, it, I think it's become much more, much, much more professionalized. And I mean that in both the best and the worst. <laughs> you know, I used to just like, you know, I would just like find a funny picture about that said something about politics, throw it up, put three lines under it. And we don't do that kind of stuff anymore. You know, it's much more a kind of a format that we do. We have two professional editors who work for us, one full time, one part time. Um, so uh, and so the, the output is really it, it. We now have a sort of style of output that we have. And um, anyone who wants to write for it, you can always send a submission to us. We'll consider it. We have a whole sort of guidelines of style. But the output is like unbelievable. Like I think the numbers of people now who have had, you know, the number of social scientists who've had work published in the Monkey Gauge is like over 3,000. I think the last time we did a thing, it was like 2,500. So, and we put out four or five pieces a day. Now on on the Washington Post blog, less fewer on the weekends, and and there's some ebb and flow based on the the academic calendar as well as other right. things and stuff like that. But um, but what we what we're constantly trying to do is find people who are interested in writing. Um, and so with that, if I can make the two second pitch, what we, what, the, what the monkey cage is today is it is an attempt to have very quick commentary from academics that is researched informed about current events. So the trick is what this is, and this is different from what we used to do. We used to do a ton of, I just found this new article. It's super interesting. Let me tell you about it. Now, pretty much the, the hook is on it's again, this is, it's in the Washington post. It's, this is the thing. The hook is on something just happened in the world. My research can inform our understanding of that thing that just happened, or something just happened, I'm an expert in this world, and in this, I can tell you, you know, here are five things you need to know about the Indian elections. Or, you know, there was just a, you know, there's just a, a horrible bombing in Sri Lanka, what do we know about terrorist attacks? My research is on this sort of aspect of terrorism. And so that's sort of the thing. So what I would say to people who are interested in potentially contributing, you want to think about the hook from your research around current events, and you might even try to you know, time things. If you're an expert in, if you're working on civics in Russia, and you know there are local elections coming up in Russia, you could reach out to me six, month, you know, six weeks ahead of time and say, hey, I've been working on this, this paper that is about this civics in Russia. I'm interested in writing a, a Monkey Age post. We generally, um, just to be very clear, we generally feature writing by uh, academics who are, you know, who are faculty or you know, kind of PhD students who are sort of farther along. You know, there is a, there, we do like to, to reference research that's been published already. 
That's not a prerequisite for it. There are all sorts of rules. But we have this really nice guide to contributing right now that's up on its bit, bit.ly. It's on bit.ly, and it's just a TMC guide. Mm -hmm. So TMC capital and G-U-I-D-E, B-I-T dot L-Y slash, um, where you can find all these things. But, um, but we absolutely run on a submissions-based model right now. And that's we've got lots and lots of people, and you can pitch us an idea. You can also... Um, you can also send us a fully fledged draft, but definitely look at the look at the guidelines before doing it. And if you are at a conference where there's one of us doing a training session and having an opportunity to talk to people about it, I totally you know advise going to that. But the best thing you can do is really just you know look through the blog from the last week, see what people are doing there. Um, but we get you know you get lots of readership. You know a, a small a piece that doesn't really get seen by that many people will get read by like a thousand or two thousand people. A piece that gets seen by a lot of people can be read by five hundred thousand people. And if you think how many people read the average academic journal article, <laughs> yeah. right? It's definitely <laughs> It's yeah. definitely worth the effort, yeah. um, and um, and we're really proud of what it's become. And you know, we're continuing to to uh, you know seek ways to get more voices involved going forward. Yeah, and if I could uh, reinforce that, it definitely has the feel of academically sourced articles. But then you'll get something talking about how the dragons in Game of Thrones are a form of nuclear deterrence, <laughs> right? So it's everything I'd want out of a political website. Yes, we have, we we do. Some of us, you know, do like to bring in some of the lighthearted kind of fun thing. And I, I have now had a lot of fun in the last week and a half. I just edited on the plane over here to Austin my second version, my second Game of Thrones uh, article. So there's another one coming out that's pushing back a little bit on, <laughs> on the dragons as Air Force and not not going full fledged to the dragons as nuclear weapons. But yeah, that was actually a, a ton of fun. And we ended up having this like long back and forth <laughs> about whether or not. Um, and since I have the microphone, I'll make about whether or not <laughs> there was this whole question about deterrence and dragons and deterrence. And 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 the question and the question I kept raising was whether the Night King was going to invade, even if he hadn't gotten a dragon. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was pushing. I think the real story here is that in the face of ideological fanaticism, right, deterrence may not work. And we had this like back and forth about it. And we we're like getting about. And, and one of the, the people, the person who was like the IR person on it, Elizabeth Saunders, like hasn't actually seen Game of Thrones. <laughs> so she so I've been brought in as on these IR pieces. Yeah. <laughs> As the Game of Thrones expert, right? So after years of being the post-communist politics or the social media guy, it's been kind of fun to be. Oh, oh, we have the Game of Thrones, another Game of Thrones piece. We got to get Josh to make sure that the the facts are correct in there. So that's been a lot of fun. I'm so, not sure Khrushchev or JFK were trying to bring in the Eternal Knight. So right. It's a little complicated. <laughs> right. Uh, well, th you've been very generous with your time. Thank you for coming by. And we always end by asking um, to give a book or movie recommendation, something that you have personally enjoyed recently, or even a Game of Thrones prediction. Although this will air probably after episode three, so you might not want to purge yourself. Uh-huh. Um, a book recommendation, I would recommend uh, Molly Roberts' uh, Censored, uh, which mm -hmm. came out last year uh, as a kind of academic book re recommendation. As a, as a fiction book recommendation, I'm reading China Meville's uh, The City and the City, which is just amazing, and especially if you're interested in politics, um, it's, it's fascinating, so I would definitely recommend that. And a movie recommendation, well, I'm going with my kids and my wife to see uh, Endgame. Okay. <laughs> we got our tickets already for this weekend, so I'm, uh, I'm really excited about that. Dr. Tucker, thank you for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. The views, opinions, and ideas expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Thank you for listening to The Slavic Connection. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information and to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.
right, so give me just a little bit of background on the podcast before we start. Do you guys host all of them, or do you host the different the four hosts? Okay. Yeah, I mean, Okay. And are you faculty, or? No, I'm a you're a graduate student, all, so is it? All it's all students. it's all master students yeah, doing yeah. it. And we've a couple um, undergrad hosts. Uh huh. And you have undergrad hosts as well. Yeah. So this is like a student-run yeah. totally. thing, Very but good. the center supports it. Yeah. But the you center doesn't them. actively disrupt us. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, okay. I, I, I attribute that to our director being so awesome as she is. So uh huh. Like, is that Mary? Yeah. Okay. But you guys totally did this on your own. Like this yeah. was like a student. Yeah. That's awesome. Absolutely. That's really, really cool. Well, listen to him before you say that. All right. <laughs> but if you're back in New York, it might be fun to have you talk with some of the Russian Slavic studies oh, MA it. students yeah. at NYU about yeah. do, about how you set this up. I mean, I also want pictures. Oh, <laughs> because yeah. this is yeah. gonna, this is, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'll give you my phone because this is awesome. 